The National Archives podcast series, Materiality Matters, New Approaches to Medieval Wax Seal Studies, presented by Elka Shevna and Paul Dreiberer. This talk was recorded on the 11th of January 2016 at the National Archives, Kew. I've got many of you will be aware the National Archives holds the largest collection of wax seals in the United Kingdom. Impressions number in their tens, possibly hundreds of thousands. And the collection is best known for seals of monarchs, government departments and officials, armorial and monastic seals, foreign seals and treaties made with Britain, and iconic examples such as the gold seal of Francis I, or the hundred plus seals attached to the Baron's letter to the Pope of 1301, a case study of which I'm going to come back and present later. Now at the same time, TNA also holds many non-armorial seals of ordinary men and women. Now a large proportion of TNA seals has been well documented, catalogued and described, and is accessible in various ways and formats at TNA. And obviously many of you will know Adrian, whose work over the past 25 years on TNA seal collections has been immense and you know, has improved TNA's own knowledge of seals and the world's knowledge. And I am now allegedly taking over from Adrian. I say allegedly. Okay, so over the past 18 months, TNA's basically started to step out beyond descriptive work and turn its attention to examining the physicality and the materiality of its wax seal collection as part of a longer term initiative led by Costas, head of the Research Development and Collection Care, and by um, Nancy Bell, head of Collection Care, who are both with us today. And that's to bring technical history to bear in increasing our knowledge of the wide variety of physical materials, parchment, paper, wax, fabric, to name but a few, that make up the nation's archival heritage. Now funded internally by TNA until last July, this multidisciplinary project is a collaboration between medieval historians and sigillographers, so basically Adrian and myself, and a conservator slash scientist, Elka from Collection Care, under Nancy's direction. Now the idea is very much to step outside of our own specialisms and to work together and to try and generate new research, new ideas, by applying scientific methodology to historical questions. And we wanted to look at things such as colour and size and their impact on status or quality, both of the document and of the issuer or recipient, and what more seals might tell us about precisely how documents were sealed and by whom in the medieval period. Now the challenge has been to identify just what questions we should be asking of each other, which has not always been easy, and the answers are often even less easy to understand trying to understand a scientist and vice versa, a scientist trying to understand a medieval historian, you speak two different languages and trying to find a common language isn't always easy. And the idea is to try and test new approaches and pose new questions of the materials in our care. And as I think will become apparent, and I should stress here initially, our findings are preliminary and much more still needs to be done if suitable funding and suitable avenues can be found, which we are working on. Now our main priority in the project has been the royal and governmental seals from around 1100 to around 1300 held at TNA. But we've also been keen and we've been able to collaborate with other institutions and individual seals of particular relevance have also been identified in Canterbury Cathedral archives, Burley House in Northamptonshire where they hold the horse trials and Westminster Abbey. Now detailed scientific examination was undertaken on selected seals as they represent different sovereigns, members of the royal family and or government departments, and they were able to broaden out our survey. Contemporary record evidence, which is where I basically come in, was also examined, in particular the 13th century Chancery Liberate rolls for the uh, 
document nerds amongst you, that's C62, to help discover how um, the king and the government were buying wax, from whom, for how much, and to what purpose. Now I'm now going to hand over to Elk. Elk is going to put the technological bones onto the historical documentary analysis. And then I'm going to come back with a case study of the Baron's letter before I sort of summarise the outcomes of the project and discuss some of the potential for future research. Thank you, Paul. As Paul has mentioned, my focus during the project was the materiality of the wax seals and what are they made of, how have they been made and where was the material coming from. In the following, I want to discuss briefly our methodology for the visual examination and the material analysis and give you some examples of our findings with regard to the royal seals. So we start always with the visual examination and the photographic documentation of the wax seals. This gives us information about the color, size and relief of each seal. You see here a selection of great seals. Obvious is that they show different colors, which give us some hints in regard to their materiality. What is not so obvious is the differences in the dimension of these seals. We have developed a protocol for simple but accurate measurements of the wax seals to compare them in more detail. We have measured the diameter and the radius of the legend, as well as the thickness of the seals on the edges and the figures. From our current measurements, it is difficult to generalize as we need to have more data. However, the numbers of the great seals so far indicate some tendencies. The diameter and the radius of the legend, as well as the thickness of the examined great seals, increase slightly over time in the Middle Ages. Here you can see the increase in the diameter of the great seals. The diameter of Henry I's great seal is, for example, around 8.6 centimeters. 170 years later, Edward I's great seal are around 10 centimeters in diameter, so 1.4 centimeters larger. The comparison of the thickness of the edges and the maximal thickness of the seals here in green shows the relief of the seals increases. Therefore, the relief becomes more pronounced and this could also be an indication of better production techniques. We have not measured the exchequer seals and the privy seals in the same way yet, but we assume from what we have seen so far that they increase as well in size, though they are in general smaller than the great seals. The dialogue of the exchequer written in the late 1170s described the exchequer seal as being smaller than the great seal. The recent discovery of the exchequer seal of Richard I by Adrian Ailes confirms this description. The sources say that the exchequer seal is usually 10% smaller than the great seal. Therefore, size matters in terms of royal and governmental seals. We have also noticed that the angle or orientation of the seal to its court is different depending on the seal matrix. We presume that the way the matrix is located in the workshop and therefore how the document with its tag is placed in it is usually the same for the fixed matrix. The seal for Henry I, for example, has a tag running through vertically. This is probably to accommodate the lux of the matrix. It suggested that the lux at the time were placed at the very top and bottom of the seal matrices and possibly also at the side in form of the cross. From the reign of John, whose seals are upright on their tags, this no longer occurred and we know that the lux of later matrices were placed at the four corners of the matrices in form of a saltire. The colors of the seals developed as well over time. The early royal seals until 1135 were made using beeswax without additional pigments. This includes the seal of Henry I. His daughter, the Empress Maud, 
who claimed the throne of England after her father's death, had unusual seals. Both seals at TNA are made of two different sealing wax compositions. The front, also called obverse, is white with no pigment addition, and the reverse shows either a red or a green sealing wax. It is likely that her choice was influenced by her connection to the continent. She lived there for several years. However, there the obverse was usually colored and the reverse was uncolored. Stephen here in the middle, Henry I's successor, used natural wax and also red sealing wax. The red pigment in the sealing wax and the silk cord indicate that more care was taken to seal, for example, his grant to Geoffrey the Mandeville, first Earl of Essex. To give more examples, the seals of Henry II are made of coated natural wax, red wax and green wax. Henry II used a green seal as Duke of Normandy before his accession to the English throne. The colors of the wax used by his son, Richard I, are also natural green and red. Two pairs of the royal charters by Richard I present some interesting questions regarding the sealing wax. Green wax and natural wax was used on December the 6th 1189 in Dover, green and red on May the 22nd in 1198. So this raises the question why? Was one of the recipients more important than the other or had one supplied the sealing wax himself? Maybe the content helped dictate the color since Richard was the first English king to habitually use green wax for solemn charges. Are the seals with the more valuable sealing wax attached to a document of higher importance, which would be underlined by the precious silk cord used? The natural colored seal may be on a duplicate copy of a more expensive but now lost top copy. Richard's brother John used both red and green sealing wax while Count of Montaigne. His red seals contain different pigments. The red seal from the time before he was king is made with red lead. The other seal is made with vermilion, which was more expensive. So as a king, he probably could afford more expensive sealing wax. Vermilion is the artificial form of cinnabar, a mercury sulfide containing red mineral. So the red lead and amount of wax needed for his seal as Count of Mortain made the seal very heavy. The materials for the second seal were more expensive, though the seal is lighter. So the red vermilion or cinema at the time was four times more expensive than the red lead. It is likely that only people of certain rank could afford to pay that expensive sealing wax. Edward I used natural green and red wax. However, most of the examined great seals are green. His smaller privy seals are usually red. So the quality of the sealing wax dependent on the kind and amount of pigments used, as well as the purity of the beeswax, pigment and resin. Color was clearly significant with the red as a more prestigious color. The main source for the red mercury sulfide in form of the cinnabar and the raw materials from vermilion, meaning mercury, was Spain. Spain at that time had the largest mines for the vermilion and the cinnabar. Beeswax was also available in different grades. The different prices probably are due to demand and also due to treatments before use. These treatments can be cleaning procedures, so for example cooking beeswax in water or bleaching procedures. It is also difficult to compare prices due to different currencies and measurements, for example weights and volumes at that time, because they were not standardized. Beeswax and resin were already traded over large distances in the Middle Ages and before. Most important for the production of wax were Russia and Poland. Wax was bleached, for example, in southern France and Spain. 
Venice had been important for wax seals since the 11th century. Genoa imported wax from Africa, and in London, wax was an important long-distance trade product. Wax was also a monopoly material traded by the Hansa, which had contracts with exporters in Novgorod and Pskov, for example. Here you see an overview of the Hanseatic wax imports from the second half of the 14th century. The blue lines show the import to London, the red line is used for the east coast and the green line shows the wax import in the south and west of England. In the 14th century, Cologne in Germany got wax from the Baltic and traded it in England. The Hansa monopoly had an influence on the price as well. So back to the materiality and the quality of the materials. Seal laces were imported from the continent as well. Used to seal documents, they might indicate wealth and purpose. The laces were made of flax, hemp, silk and natural dyes. The form of the attachment, such as knotting technique, was sometimes very sophisticated and might have had a meaning or be dictated by contemporary trends. The material value of the wax and cords was clearly an important factor, though it is not yet known how rank and identity reflected the choice. Our findings suggest that different grades of wax and laces may well have been used for different purposes, such as the desire to impress the recipient or simply to make a working copy. Thus, the materiality may well indicate the Sigelin's perception of the recipient and also the relationship between the two parties. So we have analyzed different royal seals here on the right, and we have also analyzed some seals from other institutions, as we have mentioned, the Canterbury seals. For the analysis, we have used, amongst other techniques, X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy here in the center, and we have used Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy in our lab, and cross-sectioned and different microscopes. The cross-sections here, apart from the green, include all vermilion as the main coloring pigment. As you can see on the cross-sections on the right, Maud used more pigment in the red wax than Stephen. However, she used less wax, as you saw earlier, on her wax seals. In general, um, the seals of Stephen were larger, so he needed a little bit more pigment, though the wax shows less pigment in the cross-section. Therefore, uh, not only the quality of the sealing wax needs to be taken into consideration, but also the amount to the size of the seal. In regard to the material price, it was also discovered that during the 13th century, the government bought wax from sealing writs and summonses at different prices. Questions arose such as, was the wax being bought in different stages of preparation? Could some wax be pure beeswax and some already mixed with pigment or resin? Maybe the cheapest wax was used for sealing chests and forels. In 1263, the cost for this was reasonably cheap. In contrast, the high-value wax may have been reserved for Fritz or those intended for recipients by high-ranking individuals. The cheaper wax, on the other hand, may have been used for everyday documents. We have experimented and tested how much pigment is necessary for coloring wax and found that less than 30% still gives very good coloring results. We have also treated and aged different sealing wax mixtures to find out about color changes, which had already been noticed at several broken seals. So the red and the green wax can change to more brownish color, and this is due to different chemical processes. And here on the left, you see verdigris and beeswax. This turns brown when you age it. During the production of the green wax using verdigris, we have already noticed a color change due to reaction of the verdigris with beeswax. 
The project most notably also discovered that whilst verdigris and other green copper-based pigments were used to produce green wax, the same effect can also occur without a pigment by heating up the beeswax in a copper-based vessel. So at our project we used the beeswax together with a copper plate here. This might well help to explain the later popularity of the color of the great seal and other seals, bearing in mind that vermilion was already the more expensive pigment and when you don't need any pigment, just the copper vessel and the beeswax to turn the wax green, it's obviously less expensive. Therefore, in regard to materiality, the pigment type and the sealing wax quality as well as the quartz might give us an indication of the rank of the sigillant. Now Paul will take over and talk about our latest case study, the Baron's Ledger. Okay, so as the, the project developed, we decided to be a bit more ambitious and to broaden our research out to look at documents with more than one seal attached, which of course there are many at the National Archives. Now a greater variety of questions can be asked regarding the seals and the sealing methods of this kind of document. And we alighted eventually under with Adrian's guidance upon the Baron's letter to the Pope of the 12th of February 1301. Now this is, you may not know this, but it's one of the United Kingdom's most remarkable and most reproduced medieval records. Now the document survives in two very badly damaged copies, referenced A and B. They're written on parchment with traces of silk cord attached, so in the bottom of B they can just see the little stumps at the bottom of the document. Um, it's an appeal by the community of the Barons of England, lately gathered in the Parliament held at Lincoln, which had been dissolved towards the end of January sorry, 1301. Now, the barons challenged the recent assertion by Pope Boniface VIII of papal protection for and de facto overlordship of Scotland. And they effectively tell Boniface to butt out of the Anglo-Scots conflict and Edward I's attempts to exercise feudal lordship over Scotland, a struggle memorably, if shall we say rather dubiously, portrayed in Braveheart. So constitutional historians have long seen the letter as vital proof of parliamentary membership. There are 103 parliamentary peers who put their names to it, while historians of Anglo-Scots relations sort of see it as a crucial staging post in the deterioration of those relations and the outbreak of sort of semi-permanent warfare in the early 14th century. And this is despite the fact that actually the letter was never sent, which is why the National Archives retains uh, both copies. However, for most of its history, the Baron's Letter has principally held fascination for scholars as the bearer of dozens of wax seals and therefore as key evidence of the sealmaker's art and of contemporary heraldry. Now, in theory, two copies originally had the same set of seals attached. Now, the B copy has only 87 seals and the A copy 93. Now, they were arranged on cords, attributed in B's case in the 19th century, one of 23 letters of the alphabet and in A's case, numbers from 1 to 100. So A seals are numbered, and B seals are letters A to Z, although not all the letters are used. Cord T from the B document, with seals 21 to 29 to 31 and number 100, which are the seals of Welleran Teutonicus, Welleran the German, Lord of Chilton in Buckinghamshire, John of Havering, Lord of Grafton in Northamptonshire, Alan Lazouche, Lord of Ashby, de Lazouche in Leicestershire, and Walter de Beauchamp, Lord of Ulster in Staffordshire. Now, over the last four centuries, the seals have been drawn, engraved, and painted. 1729 Society of Antiquaries reproduction of the 1624 drawings by the Herald Augustus Vincent, which have then been overpainted in the 1840s by Henry Cole of the then Public Record Office. 
and Pedricole's overpaintings, you can obviously see, give you a better idea of the colour profile of the seals and then their connections to each other. You can just see the little joins between the two, sort of art artificially drawn there. Now the seals have also been extensively described, listed and photographed, most notably around the turn of the 20th century in a publication by Lord Howard de Walden here. And now, thanks to our project, digitally scanned by Brian in the Image Library. Uh, just as a note, on the, while we're passing on this seal, this seal of Henry of Lancaster, you'll see on the, this, the, the reverse side, you'll see the, the fingerprints. And you can actually see the fingernails. Now I'm going to refer later to a, a new project that's just been funded by the HRC at the Universities of Lincoln and Bariswith, which is the kind of thing that we were, the areas we're getting into here, where they're actually looking at the fingerprints themselves, what they can tell you about the sealing practices and the process, but also they are actually involved with the forensic science department in Lincoln, and they're hoping to actually do some proper fingerprint analysis on these, and there may be some impactful modern criminology, although that, actually they're only just starting, so their findings aren't yet out there. Now, prompted by the um, Wax Seals project, we wanted to submit the, uh, the Baron's letter to this, the kind of scientific analysis Elka has just outlined in the previous 10-15 minutes and to see if we could establish a methodology which would inform historical debate. Now in essence we've adopted a three-pronged approach. So we've looked first to see what questions and answers the historical record supplies. Then we've undertaken a visual examination to establish how the seals were arranged on their cords and how the cords might have been attached to the copies. And we then finally subjected the seals to material analysis to establish what pigments were used in making the seals and any similarities or differences between the seal pairs and those on the same cords. And this then should hopefully assist us in assessing the variety of colours used and their possible significance in terms of status and as in discerning a possible method of arrangement and um, sealing and a timeline for how the document was actually completed. Now our investigation is very much driven by the historical evidence and the questions we as historians would like help answering. Now the first puzzle is the relationship of the Baron's letter with those men summoned to Parliament and how attendance correlates with those whose seals are attached. Now parliamentary writs, C219 in case you're interested, show that 89 Barons were summoned to Lincoln. The letter itself, as I said, bears the names of 103 men, 7 Earls and 96 Barons. But only a total of 95 seals were attached. Um, now, 31 men who were not summoned to Parliament therefore sealed the letter. So why was that? Now, in the week following the dissolution of Parliament at the end of January in Lincoln, 1301, lavish ceremonies were held in Lincoln to mark the creation of Edward of Carnarvon, the heir to the throne, as Prince of Wales. And we can expect this boosted numbers at Lincoln. And just a picture in your mind, Edward of Carnarvon is Edward II. Um, now, further record evidence muddles the, muddies the water slightly. In the record of receipts and expenses made by and for the king's household, the wardrobe book of the 29th year of the reign of Edward I, so 1300 to 1301, there are a couple of entries which show that the documents were not sealed on just one occasion. In fact, a fortnight after Parliament was dissolved at the end of January, as is given in their dating clause. So on the 20th, 20th of February and 13th of March 1301, there were payments to a John of Winchester and Peter de Collingbourne, clerks of the king's wardrobes. Four, supplying to Alexander Le Converse, who is to go to the magnates of England, then with the Prince of Wales in the Marches of Wales, green wax and silk laces, with which he is to cause the letters of the magnates of England to the Pope to be sealed and dispatched. And then on the 24th of February, there's a further payment of five shillings sevenpence to John of Winchester for a leather chest in which the letters patent sealed with the seals of the magnates of England to be sent to the Pope are to be placed and kept safely and then three pounds of cotton with which to keep the seals safely. 
Now this set of evidence suggests that while the documents were never sent, obviously the seals were certainly collected, and not only from those who had received summons to Parliament. So we can obviously, we can tell there were two stages to this. Now a primary question we hoped to investigate was whether our analysis could reveal material evidence enough to identify those men whose seals were collected in Lincoln, those men with the prints in the marches, and for those 31 men who did not attend Parliament. Okay, just to spoil the story, we haven't found it yet. Bear with us for another few minutes. Okay, so these charts show Elka's preliminary findings on the colour profile of the seal, the 180 seals attached to the copies of the Baron's letter. Now you'll note there are four principal colours used and basically similar proportions as you might expect from pairs. We might at first glance perhaps see in the identical dark green figures evidence for the wax sent into the marches, if we know that was green. And we might also, bearing what Elka said in mind, imagine that the five red seals represent the highest quality and therefore the most important of the owners who were the earls. Now looking at the materials used, we essentially see mixtures to various levels of evenness of beeswax and different pigments, although various fillers like sand are often used. Now interesting things to note are that the red seals generally have a higher copper content than the brown and many of the brown seals are paler and they may represent a different composition. The composition of all of the green seals is very similar and they may possibly even come from the same lump, lumps of wax. Where they differ, as Elka has explained, is in the technique of mixing and cooking, as well as the ageing process, rather than necessarily in the evenness or not of a pigment such as verdigris. And of course, as Elka said, the brown seals may not even have started as brown. They could have started as green. Now, wax seals on multi-sealed documents often show a similar colour, which suggests a certain unity as a group as well as obvious practical considerations such as tempering of the wax. Different waxes or colours used on the same document may well raise the possibility that the seals were attached at different times. Indeed, although we have around 100 pairs of seals of those four main colour types across the two copies, which might suggest an orderly process of sealing in two different phases, in Lincoln after the Parliament and then in the Welsh marches, it's clear that in at least 10 cases the pairs do not match in colour. So, while half of these are dark green versus light green, which might be explained away by differences in ageing or mixing or cooking, here, as in the case of Ralph de Montferma, who's titular Earl of Gloucester, we have completely different colours. So, on the, uh, the left, you have the red, and on the right, you have the brown. And then here for Thomas of Lancaster, Earl of Lancaster, who's the nephew of Edward I, we have brown on the left, and then a palish green on the right. And this, of course, also means that the five pairs of red seals don't all have the same owners, and they're not even all earls, and that differently coloured wax was in some cases used for some seals on one copy than the other. And we might draw a number of conclusions from that. Now, obviously, the brown and green seals may, as we say, originate in the same wax, and which might make any distinction between the wax used in Lincoln and the March is practically impossible. We also wondered the extent to which human factors played a part, and Adrian suggested that the royal clerks may have run out of material and they might even get this and may narrow in using differently coloured wax. Don't know. Now, could the colour differentiation also lead us to suspect, as Elka said, that one copy was of higher status, that to be sent to the Pope, and the other, the office copy, to be kept here? And for that reason, Montherma, as the Earl, had brought his own um, special red wax to Lincoln, either to show off or to represent the, the solemn importance he felt the document had that he was going to seal. Now, as a complement to this chemical and colour analysis of the seals, Elka has also examined the materiality of the cords 
and the locations of the seals attached to them in order better to assess the arrangement of the seals. Now there are actually 16 different types of cord used when you categorise them by braiding and by colour across the two copies. And both Adrian and I were quite taken aback by that. It's not something we regularly think about or see. So it's quite interesting to see that, that massive difference in that range. And here we see examples of different colours, thicknesses of cords and braiding in some of the B um, copy seals. And here we have a breakdown of the results. And you'll observe that the majority of the, the cords, as you can see at the top, are reddish and belong to the type R1, which is a type Elk has identified, which is a 12-strand braiding. And type R1B is a five-stranded braiding, while the remainder are variations of multi-strand braidings. And this might imply, given the higher occurrence, that the seals on the R1 cords were fixed after the Lincoln Parliament, when we know the majority of the seal owners would have been present. Other colours, green and yellow, and what appears to be a bleach set. Several cords are multicoloured, particularly on the B series, meaning that strands with at least two colours are then braided together. The thicknesses of the cords also vary considerably, from as thin as 1.9mm on cord for A64-5 to around 4.5mm on cord U, and the average is around 3mm. So, how were the cords themselves fixed to the document? For although they're separate now, we know that they were, and actually the seals I should say, are boxed separately. And how were the documents to be displayed? Now an answer is provided to some extent by the survival of this um, tiny scrap of parchment here, which was attached to cord Z on the B copy. And you can see, both on the left and the right, there were three holes were made in the parchment through which each cord, at least on this copy, was threaded. Now it's also difficult to distinguish now, but the parchment has writing on it. Um, and in this case it says J-O-H, which would be Latin for Johannes. Um, which, given that it's called Z, probably means that it was either John de Greystoke, Lord of Morpeth in Northumberland, or somebody called John of Lancaster. Now, the most practical technique for attaching the cords to the document would be for an empty cord to be threaded through the parchment. Knots would then be tied either side, and you can see the knots, at least on the bottom right there, and then the seals would be affixed. And that way, then, the viewer could be presented with the obverse of all the seals. And you'll see, again, the knots here have been tied on either side of where, where it would have been slotted through the document. Now, Alexander de Converse was sent into the marches with both the documents and separate waxen cords. And we may assume that it's possible that the seals of those present in Lincoln had already been attached from the purchase of the leather chest and the cotton with which he presumably padded and protected the seals, either with sealed bags or just to like, pad out the, the chest. This would provide a real display of a royal authority for those yet to seal and for those who had not attended Parliament. But in what manner the converse then attached the remainder is not clear from the record evidence alone. Now a more systematic visual examination, here we can see the stars of the shell on the left, um, helped us generate other ideas about the arrangement of the seals on the documents and the sealing process as a whole. And here we have Elka and Adrian in front of our two homemade display boards. And uh, by, lay by laying out the seals in this way, we were able to create a sort of virtual representation of the sealed document and then we could assign locations of seals on cords across both the copies and then you could thereby compare and correlate them. Each seal was assigned a location on each cord to the face and the dorse, the back of each document and those closest to the threading holes being marked with a Roman numeral 1i and then the remainder counting down the cords being assigned for example a 2 or a 3 for second and third position. And this revealed Basically, there was no order by status was apparent across the document, so sealing that way, but perhaps on each cord, so like earls would often seal in the first position, regardless of colour, 
unless there were two earls on the same chord, then obviously there was precedence there. Seals are arranged by chord vertically, not horizontally across the document, so that way. And there is a difference in the order of seals on some chords. The same seals are not always paired with each other. And in fact, there are at least 11 seals which do not sit with the same seals on both documents. And here we have the seal of uh, Edmund Mortimer, Lord of, Lord of Wigmore in Herefordshire. And on the right there, he is with the brothers of um, John and Edmund Hastings. And on the left, with Henry of Lancaster, Lord of Monmouth, and Fruit Fitzwarren, Lord of Whittington in Shropshire. So this is Edmund Mortimer here. Um, obviously, all of those are Lords of the Welsh March, interestingly, which doesn't help us. Now, both examples appear to use the same wax. If we move to chord N on the B series, they're actually there. The four seals on that chord are then dispersed over four different chords on the A series, completely shaken up. And taken together, this would suggest a lack of systematic approach to sealing the documents as a whole, and that they may not even have been sealed together in the same place or even contemporaneously at the same time, uh, causing obviously some confusion in the process of sealing. Or there was obviously a difference in purpose between the two copies, where an original arrange arrangement envisioned for the more important copy could be dispersed without too much concern for that, for that one of the lesser significance. Now there is, however, also a possible correlation with parliamentary attendance, in that if you look at the location of seals on the B copy, particularly chords G to Z, and you compare that with their respective locations on the A series chords, it can be seen in over half of the cases that the seals of those not summoned to Parliament and therefore possibly those whose presence with the Prince either at Lincoln after the Parliament or in the marches might be reflected take a position on their uh, respective chords equal or lower than those summoned to Parliament. So they're always towards the bottom of the chord. This might practically imply that the chords were prepared in Lincoln and then borne to the marches by Le Converse and those missing seals then are fixed on spare space at the bottom of each chord. So, for example, on chord H, you have the seals of John de Hoddleston, John de Botetourt, Lord of Mendelsham in Suffolk, and Richard Talbot, Lord of Eccleswall in Herefordshire. None of those were summoned to Lincoln. And they're all located at an equal or lower position there than their partner seal on the respective A series chords, and of the seals of those who were not summoned. Now, unfortunately, annoyingly, this pattern doesn't universally hold good. So if you take, for example, chord L, we have the seal of Henry Tregos, Lord of Goring in Buckinghamshire, he wasn't summoned to Parliament, that takes a position between the seals of two lords who were, so John de Hastings, Lord of Abergavenny, and William Touche. Now despite these complicated findings, and I'll admit they're complicated, it is possible that if we get down to it more intensively, we may find more insights into the arrangement of seals on both sets of chords. Now just finally, one very bit of recent research just before Christmas that we were working on. Now this has enabled us to look in more detail at the back of the documents. So I had a quick look at the back of the documents in the UV room in Collection Care. Now, although it's not very clear on the slide, there are chord stubs hanging from the B copy in the middle, you can see there. And written in alignment with these copies appears to be the names of those men whose seals were attached. So there's the chords, and then written this way. You can't really see it very well, but there is writing there. Um, now, in other words, the document bears evidence of this original arrangement. So I, I reckon I can pick out about 12 chords from the names that we know but the condition of the document is so bad on the back that my eyes just, just couldn't get it, even with the UV light. Fortunately, as you can see on the right, one of our predecessors in the 1920s, Charles Johnson, made a preliminary examination and he helpfully sketched out the arrangement he perceived, which you can see is a lot more detailed. And this might enable us to work out exactly how the seals were arranged and maybe therefore work out a timeline for sealing when we combine it with what we know about the wax and the cords. 
Now, obviously, the writing on the back could be dated to before the seals were applied, sort of a guide to the clerks as they were sealing. It could be written shortly after the seals had been affixed as a sort of means of reference, or it could have been written several years later as kind of an archival device so that the later, later scribes knew what was going on. But the hand appears to be around sort of the early 14th century, so it's around the same time. It's not like a 17th century notation. OK, I'm going to conclude now. So what you might ask yourself has been the point of the Wax Seals project at the National Archives. Now, if our especially if our conclusions or findings are so tentative and they fail to pr provide definitive answers to some of our key research questions. Now, as you can see, I hope, Elka has been making a mass of interesting findings and allowing us to pose new questions relating to the materiality of the documents in our care. So in short, obviously the project has enabled us to establish a new method to measure seals. It's revealed the importance of the angle orientation of the seal to its tag or cord. Established that pigment amount can vary in seals of the same colour owned by the same individual and that, can co and that colour can be produced by means other than pigmentation. So for example, as I say, while verdigris was used to produce green wax, the same effect can be achieved by heating beeswax in a copper kettle or a copper vessel, and so it can be produced more cheaply. We've obviously been now able to urge historians, sigillographers and scientists to sort of come together to enter more consistent and comprehensive data into the international databases of seals. And we've been able to sort of, over the past year, scope out some possibilities for future research. So we've been, we, we, we travelled to Germany where we presented our findings at Gießen and sort of a a wax seal symposium where the, the fingerprints project was also um, presented. Um, we also recently attended, just before Christmas, the British Museum Conference on seals as a whole. And I believe Elko has taken much interest. We've had a lot of interest from outside academics and other heritage institutions on the kind of research that we're able to do and the kind of collaboration that we might be able to do with them. So hopefully this isn't the end of the story, but for now, uh, thanks very much. Well, I'm, I was in the fortunate position in that I'm, my previous job, I was in the University of York in the archives there, and there was already a project going on um, in collaboration with the bioarchaeology department at York working on uh, parchment. And they were actually looking at the DNA of parchment, trying to establish what the animal was, what condition, what age it was when it was slaughtered. Possibly, if they could, get some kind of... Um, you know, like they do on the archaeology shows where they get the teeth grinded up and they can show you the where the person lived. So obviously I was always already in a position when, when Adrian mentioned this was going on, I was like, oh, this is good. This is yet more grist to the mill that, for the collaborations. Um, I, I guess we also talk about ink, possibly. Might be a possible way of looking at particularly, I, I guess, maybe in illuminated manuscripts, which of course we don't have too many of. But I'm not, I'm not sure whether the British Library are working on this themselves at the moment. Really, again, this was, this was news to me, although it probably wasn't news to Adrian. The other stuff you can find out from documents, from, from the, the non-textual the non things. I, mean, I never even considered chords until we thought, oh, Elka said, oh, look, here's, here's all the chord breakdown. I'm like, oh, wow. There's so much, you can, so much new you can tell just from... This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.